But you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea chapter 12. We're getting close to the end of Hosea, Hosea 12. In the English, English versions, it's going to begin at chapter 11, verse 12, but it really in Hebrew uh, should be all of chapter 12. Again, it's a question I'll have for the editors when we get to heaven as to why they did such a thing. Uh, but it is chapter 12, but it begins reading in English at 11, verse 12. So we'll begin reading at 11, verse 12. Ephraim has encircled me with lies in the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind. He daily increases lies and desolation. Also, they make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord also brings a charge against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his deeds, he will recompense him. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. That is, the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. So you, by the help of your God, return, observe mercy and justice, and wait on your God continually. A cunning Canaanite, deceitful scales are in his hand. He loves to oppress, and Ephraim said, Surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They shall find in me no iniquity that is sin. But I am the Lord your God, ever since the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feasts. I have also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions and have given symbols through the witness of the prophets. Though Gilead has idols, surely they are vanity. Though they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal, indeed their altars shall be heaps in the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the country of Syria. Israel served for a spouse, and for a wife he tended sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet he was preserved. Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore his Lord will leave the guilt of his bloodshed upon him and return his repro reproach upon him. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh God, we ask again that you would speak to us. We are thankful that Christ is the true prophet. Christ is the one promised of old that all the prophets point to. And we're thankful that he speaks to us because we are ignorant. And there's much we still need to learn, especially when it comes to Old Testament history and redemptive history. There's much we need to learn with respect to the lives that we live in this present age. But we're thankful for the things that are very clear, the things that you teach us concerning salvation, concerning godliness. But we ask and pray that tonight, once again, you'd send forth your spirit, that you'd be pleased to speak to us and nourish us and give us the rest and uplifting that we need. We are thankful that this day is meant to be a day of rest for your people, and we're thankful that you are pleased to give us that strength that we need. We pray that we would not put our trust, as, trust in princes or in a son of man or put our trust in horses, but we'd put our faith and trust in you. Thank you that you are our God and we are your people. Thank you that you love us and you care for us and you will be with us. So be with us now, and we're thankful that we shall be with you forever. And we pray that you'd help us now to set our eyes upon you, to be awake and attentive. Please speak to us, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. amen. Well, riches are not a sinful gift that God gives, but riches, as we've seen throughout the prophet Hosea, often lead to complacency and forgetfulness. When one is rich, one forgets the need that they have. They have this assumption, this complacency breeds this assumption 
where people can say, look at my strength, look at what I have done, rather than looking for uh, where their strength actually is, and that is in God. This has been Israel's problem. The wealthier they got, the more they forgot the God who gave them that wealth. And we see that problem explicitly in our text this day. As Ephraim says, I have found wealth for myself. I have found strength by myself. And so Yahweh comes once again and exposes and uh, explicates and explains the people's problems, explains their sins, explains their issues, namely that they have not trusted in God. They have not put their faith in him and they've put their strength in something else. And that has been their problem throughout their history. Now, remember, this is the time of the divided kingdom. There's Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Hosea is primarily a prophet to the north. And so, and certainly he has these prophecies that include the south as well, which we see tonight. And we see the main picture, the main message of the book of Hosea is Hosea's marriage. We see the picture of uh, actual adultery is a picture of spiritual adultery. And so that is the message, what Yahweh will do to a wicked people, what Yahweh will do to a wayward and adulterous wife, both in judgment, but also in the promise of restoration as well. And so really, we actually come to the final section of the book of Judges, I must say, Judges, wow, I'm thinking of Wednesday. Hosea, uh, the book of Hosea, uh, and certainly the last section was quite a long section. We saw that forgetful people. There was a lot of exposing and judgment. There wasn't a lot of hope there, but hope did sprinkle through uh, throughout that section. But in this final resolution, uh, we see repeated themes. We see this exposing sin, warning about judgment, but also the promise of restoration as well. And I think the problem is very clear in these verses, namely the problem of man's strength. The problem of man's strength or man's perceived strength and his trust in anything other than the Lord God Almighty. That's the problem of all men. Assuming that we have, that they have vigor and vitality in their own ways and in their own things. It's true of Israel, it's true of the rich, it's true of the young, and it's true of all of us. And when we don't see our need, when it's hard for us to see our need, then we're not going to see our need for our Lord and Savior. When one thinks they are strong, then they have no need for one who is mightier than them. That's why sin needs to be exposed. That's why sin needs to be preached upon. And that's why the warnings of judgment need to come as well, so then we can also provide the message of hope in Christ Jesus. And so certainly we do see that uh, as the prophet Hosea comes to an end. Uh, but in Hosea chapter 12, the prophet exposes their problem of relying on their own strength rather than the strength of the Lord. That's the key idea, because the word strength comes up three times, or at least the cognate or the root of it comes up three times uh, in these verses. So we'll see the problem of relying on one's own strength, or we could ask the question, where does our strength lie. And so we'll look at this and answer this under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see Israel's strength in vain things, chapter 11, 12 to chapter 12, 8. So verse 12 to uh, 12, 8, Israel's strength in vain things. And then we'll see Israel's strength in Yahweh in verses 9 through 14. So Israel's strength in vain things, and then Israel's strength in Yahweh. So let's first look at Israel's strength in vain things. Again, beginning at chapter 11, verse 12, when we see a people who put their strength or put their trust 
in Assyria. But there's a myriad of other problems. He kind of brings it all to a head. He brings it uh, all to a close, uh, begins to bring it all to a close by summarizing further uh, what Israel has done. Now, we saw last time it ends with this promise of restoration, this, this promise of an exodus, a new exodus, which comes in Christ Jesus. Christ brings that out of Egypt. I called my son when Jesus, uh, when Joseph takes his family, Mary and Jesus, into Egypt. He comes out of Egypt. It is to fulfill Hosea chapter 11. And we see language of restoration, this return, this coming back from Assyria, this coming back from Egypt which describes the messianic age in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it was an encouraging close to the previous section, but then it has to come and bear on the present people. So he comes once again to remind the old covenant people of their violations, to remind the old covenant people of their downfall and how their violations will lead to their downfall, how they've trusted in Baals, they've trusted in riches, they've trusted in everything but the Lord God most high. But yet they still think that they worship God. And so we see the language in eleven twelve: Ephraim has encircled me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Seems to be that religious sins are in view here. And religious sins are the key and main problem uh, for the old covenant people. They worshiped Baal alongside Yahweh. They worshiped the Ashtoreths alongside Yahweh. They wanted to get things. They had this mercenary spirit. It was all about them in their worship. It was all about what they wanted. And they had, you know, had this sort of um, uh, this net to try and catch as many gods as they could to make sure they had the life that they wanted, not recognizing that it was God who redeemed them, God who saved them, God who gave them all the good things that they have. And so we see Ephraim has encircled. So it's Yahweh almost in his, in his house, in his temple, saying they've encircled me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. It's no longer a place of worship, but it has become a den of thieves in many ways. So Ephraim, again, is the dominant tribe in the north, and so the north is in view. It's usually interchangeable with Ephraim and Israel. So Ephraim's got its problems. Israel's got its problems. We know that. Uh, but Judah also has its problems. And I think that is in view uh, in the second part of verse 12. But Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. Now, it is a difficult passage because some, the way some, especially the New King James, translates it, it sounds positive. Here's Ephraim and all their problems in the north, but Judah in the south, they still seem to be walking with God. I don't think that's the case. I think the latter part of verse, uh, verse 12 is highlighting the flakiness of Judah. Because the word walk there is not the typical word for walk. It's actually found quite rarely in the Bible. And it has this idea of roaming freely. And certainly we see the idea could be Judah still walks with God, El, which El is used in the scriptures to describe the one true God, but it's also used in connection with the nations around them. So it could be Judah still walks with God or walks with the gods around them, but then he also wants to walk with the Holy One. He's flaky, he's fair weather, just like Israel or Israel in the north has been. Now again, there have been good kings in the south. There is the Davidic line in the south. Jerusalem is in the south. But we see that Judah has a lot of issues and problems as well. And it could be that when Hosea is prophesying at this time, Ahaz is king. And if you know your history of the south, 
Ahaz is not a good king. Ahaz is a vile king. Ahaz is a wicked king. Ahaz uh, uh, makes a treaty uh, with Assyria. And so he is a vile man. And so they could be in view. Judah still roams freely. Judah still roams with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. And even to, uh, the idea of Holy Ones, yes, it is used to describe Yahweh in his absolute purity, in his otherness, but it is also used of angels. It is also used of holy ones. And so it could be he walks with God, but he walks with the holy ones, or he's loyal with these holy ones. In any case, I think flakiness is in view. He roams freely with God, even loyal to holy ones. He thinks he's worshiping God, but he's worshiping others as well. So it seems to be flakiness is in view. And as we're going to see in verse 2, he's going to bring a charge against Judah as well. So issues in the north, issues in the south, and so then Yahweh is going to use a historical lesson to bring it to bear upon the people. And so we see also Ephraim in 12.1, they still have their issues of people who pursues wind, feeds on the wind, it's like a sheep that's gazing or grazing on nothing and pursues the east wind, could be the case that when the east wind blew in from the desert, it just made everything dry. They're grazing, they're feeding upon the east wind, thinking it will bring them vitality. But in reality, it's just going to dry them out. And we know who comes from the east, right? Assyria comes from the east. And eventually Babylon comes from the east to take down, uh, to take down uh, both certainly Assyria with Israel in the north and eventually Babylon uh, with Judah in the south. So the east wind is going to come. Ephraim feeds, and we saw in chapter 8 that they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. It means nothing. Their worship is nothing. Their worship doesn't do anything. Their feeding does nothing. It's like eating cotton candy. They feed on the wind and pursue the east wind. Nothing shall come of it. They're not going to grow, but they are going to die. He daily increases his lies and desolate. Daily. It is a daily thing. It is a thing that happens perpetually in Ephraim. It's a thing that happens perpetually in Israel. It's a thing that is rampant among the so-called people of God. So they're flaky, they're idolatrous, they're wicked. Then also notice they make their strength and they make treaties with the enemy. Also, they make a covenant with the Assyrians and oil is carried to Egypt. They put their trust in Assyria. And then later on, Hosea, one of the kings, different from Hosea, in 2 Kings 17, you know what he does? He tries to renege and he goes to get help from Egypt because Israel has oil and Egypt does not. So they trade their oil for help from Egypt. They put their trust in things other than God. And certainly we see, have seen this throughout the book as well, how they've, how they've gone to Assyria for help, how they've gone to Egypt and made deals with them. But the point is, they're not putting their trust in God. They're not putting their trust in Yahweh. And God is going to now give them a historical lesson about strength and where that comes from. And he does so by way of Jacob. And so we see this begin in chapter 12, verse 2. We see first Yahweh brings this charge against the south. Israel in the north has major problems and so does the south. The Lord also brings a charge against Judah and I will punish Jacob according to his ways. Now Jacob could be used to describe the whole kingdom. 
They, don't, they shouldn't be a divided kingdom. Israel, the fate of it is tied to, and I'm talking about Israel as a whole, north and south, is, is meant to be tied together. And so it's not just going to be the north that has problems, but the south is going to receive their due as well because of the things that they have done. The Lord brings a charge. The Lord is laying out what they have done before them. I will punish Jacob according to his ways, and according to his deeds, he will recompense him. So it can be used to describe Israel as a whole. But also, he's using it as a historical example as well. He's using Jacob as a historical example, both of one who sought his own way, one who tried to use his own strength, but yet one who also received a lot of mercy. Why is he going to talk about Jacob? Again, it's difficult. This passage is difficult. But he's going to highlight the due that Jacob receives for the things that he does. Jacob does do terrible things. <laughs> he is a patriarch. He is redeemed. He is blessed. We get all that. But he does, by way, he does so by way of terrible things. When you read Genesis 26 and 27 and 28, those are not meant to be prescriptive. That is, you don't follow what Jacob did, but God still blessed him. God was still gracious to him, but nonetheless, Jacob still had to deal with the consequences of what he did. And the point seems to be, if Israel turns to the Lord, God will be merciful. If Israel looks to the Lord who has redeemed them and saved them, God will be gracious. But if not, they're going to receive their due. And when you consider the idea, the theological idea of election and reprobation in light of Jacob and Esau, how can you say that man deserves salvation? I mean, there's a reason that Paul quotes Genesis, Genesis 25, talking about how election came because of what God did before the boys did anything. And then you read about what the boys did and you wonder, wow, why would God save such wretched people? How can salvation be in any but God, especially as you read what Jacob does. And so then the prophet goes on to, on to unpack some of these things. He took his brother by the heel in the womb. Now, theologically, we know that the older shall serve the younger. But again, the way he does it is not good. Genesis 25 is in view here. Yes, Esau, he sells the birthright for a morsel of food and he receives his just due. But at the same time, Jacob does it by way of deceit. Jacob does it by way of treachery. Jacob does it in a way that, that he shouldn't. But yet, and then he has to flee for that very reason. So Genesis 25, he struggles with his brother. He struggles and he fights. He is the supplanter. He is God's rascal, as Dale Ralph Davis says. He is the one who tries to supplant. And so he grabs by the heel. He takes his brother by the heel in the womb. So that's Genesis 25. He is the heel snatcher, uh, according to Genesis 25. But then we see in Genesis 32, and there's no order here. It's for theological purposes. There's not a historical order here, but a theological order. He goes on to talk about his struggle with God. And this is, has Genesis 32 in view for us. How Jacob struggled with God. And you know that occasion. It's when he's about to return and he's going to have to meet his brother. And he doesn't know what's going to happen. Is my brother going to shoot me or stab me or kill me? Is he going to do something? I guess all those things are killing in some sort of way. But he, what's going to happen to me? He's fearful. 
He's worried he is weak. And this is when God appears to him by way of the man wrestling, by way of that angel of the Lord and how Jacob wrestles with him, Jacob struggles with him, and he seeks blessing from this one. And what happens? Jacob becomes weak in his hip, right? <laughs> he has that weak point. The point is there is one who is mightier than Esau that Jacob needs to trust in. Jacob is weak, but God is strong. That seems to be what is in view in Genesis 32. There's a lot of tough stuff there, but Jacob recognizes, I wrestled and saw God face to face, and yet I have been preserved. And this is when his name changes, right? He goes from the supplanter to the prince. He goes from the rascal to royalty. He goes from the one who deceives to the one who receives much blessing. He receives much blessing before that as well, but we see there that God changes his name. He becomes a prince with God, where Israel gets its namesake. It's because Jacob is weak and God is strong. And so in his strength, he struggles with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and he prevails. He weeps. Now, the weeping doesn't happen in Genesis 32, but that could be in view of just later revelation, helping us understand earlier revelation. He does weep, though, in Genesis 33, when he sees his brother again, they weep together. And we see that he did not need to fear Esau like he thought he had too. And so he struggles. He's a rascal. He's a deceiver. But he seeks favor with God. He sought favor from him. And that is, again, in that Genesis 32 narrative, in that 30, 32 section. He seeks favor. I want blessing. I want blessing from you. I want the promises that you told me way back in Genesis 28. And that is in view at the end of verse 4 there. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. Notice what God said to Jacob many, 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 many years ago now applies to the people. He spoke to us. After Jacob flees, after Jacob deceives, after he takes the birthright from Esau, after he deceives his father and runs away and is exiled from the land, from the promised land, what does God do? God appears to him. God appears to him at Bethel. And that's where we see Jacob's ladder and the angels descending and ascending. And God is gracious to him and says, I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will walk with you. You see, it's highlighting both Jacob's wickedness and Jacob's um, rascaliness, but it's also highlighting God's goodness and how God spoke and how God is gracious and how God speaks and spoke to his people. And then there's that covenant renewal in Genesis 35 at Bethel once again. And that's after the whole incident with Dina, the whole thing that went on at Shechem, that terrible situation with what went on where uh, she's violated and then the brothers go and kill a bunch of men. I mean, it's a terrible situation. Again, you read the Bible and you wonder why man is saved. I mean, even the heroes of the faith are terrible, do terrible things. And Jacob did terrible things. Jacob was passive in many ways. Jacob deceived. He was quite a terrible man. Again, how could any man be saved? Who is man that God is mindful of us? But God found him in Bethel and there he spoke to us. And again, why is Bethel important for the time of Hosea? Bethel has come up a few times. Do you remember where Jeroboam set up his golden calves as a rival to Jerusalem? 
it's Bethel. He violated Bethel. He violated the house of the Lord, which was initially the place where God appeared to Jacob. And now we see that God in that place spoke to his people there. Bethel was a place of blessing, but Israel defiled it. Israel violated it. Israel trampled on the goodness of God, and there he spoke to us. Then he goes on to say in verses 5 and 6, he applies and brings further uh, redemptive history in view. That is the Lord God of hosts, not Baal. The Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his memorable name. And that idea of memorable name comes up from Exodus chapter 3. That is the burning bush. That is when God appears to Moses and he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he talks about his name, his memorable name. And here we see that the Lord is his memorable name. Baal is not God. Asherahs are not God. Any other God of the Philistines are not God. But the Lord God, Yahweh, is God. And Yahweh is the one who spoke to the people of Israel. He spoke to us. And his name should not be forgotten. But what happened? It's because of the people. The people forgot it. Isn't that why in Psalm 103, the psalmist says, we should forget not all his benefits? Forget not the good things that he has done. Forget not the forgiveness that we have. Because why? We are prone to forget. We are prone to be a people who have amnesia, short-term memory loss, because we're forgetful long-term memory loss of the good things that God has done. That's why we need to hear it again and again and again and again, be reminded of what he has done. And so he spoke, so the Lord is his memorable name. So again, there is this kind of twofold application. Here's what happened with Jacob. Here's the rascaliness of him. That's the second time I've used that tonight. But also the goodness. And so he brings it to bear, the goodness, the, the mercy of God. Verse 6, so you by the help of your God return. So you by the help of your God return. Come to him, observe mercy and justice, and wait upon your God continually by God's help. How many times did God renew Jacob? How many times was God gracious to Jacob and many returns he gave to Jacob? How many times has God been gracious with the people of Israel? Return again, observe mercy and justice. That is his call to this wayward people. If they do not repent, if they do not return, the Lord will vomit them out of the land and curse them. But by the help of your God, Return, observe mercy and justice, and wait on your God continually. He has taken what Jacob has done, redemptive history, and he's applying it to Israel in a positive way here in verses 4, 5, and 6. But he also applies it in a negative way, in a sense that he's exposing in verses 7 and 8 Israel and how they've been. They haven't been Israel at all. They've been a cunning Canaanite. They've been like the nations around them. They haven't been like the people of God at all. They have deceitful scales that are in their hand. They try to measure out and gain more money by way of these deceitful weights. They love to oppress. Not only are they wicked when it comes to religious things, but they're vile when it comes to social things as well. They're stealing. They're engaging in fraud. And notice Ephraim's boasting and Ephraim's unawareness. 
Again, self-awareness is an important thing for us all to have, to be self-aware. It's a highly lacking trait in our modern times, and it's come up a lot in Hosea. Ephraim says, Surely I have become rich, I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they shall find in me no iniquity, that is sin. He's just talking about the scales, but they don't see it, do they? That's kind of the key problem, isn't it? They think everything's fine. They think everything's great. And that's what a rich person is like, isn't it? A rich person thinks they have everything. A rich person thinks, I don't need to worry about religion because I have it all. Or young people. You ever talk to young people sometimes doing evangelistic things and they're like, well, I don't really need to believe now. I can do that later on in my life. They want to do everything now because they think they're fine. Rally is they need to believe on Christ because they find strength in their vitality. A young person finds strength in their vitality and a rich person finds strength in their riches and they don't see their need. Again, it's not wrong to have riches, but we must recognize where it comes from. God gives it as a gift. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And Ephraim, I have become rich and I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they shall find in me no iniquity. That is sin, an arrogant assertion. Their assumption is we haven't done anything wrong. And that's why people need to be told that they are sinful. Now, I think all of this teaches us where trust in self leads or trust in anything else other than God where it leads. It only leads to hardened hearts and hardened hearts only lead to judgment and righteous judgment. That's eventually what happens to the old covenant people. They don't return. They do not repent. They do not come back. They do not observe mercy and justice and God kicks them out of the land. And even after they return, they still don't have a king which paves the way for Christ the king to come and to usher in the new covenant era and to usher in and inaugurate the new heavens and new earth, the messianic age in him. Because that's where trust in self leads. It only leads to destruction. And sometimes even for God's people, even for Calvinists, we struggle with self-help syndrome, even among us. We love to trust in our own ways. We love to trust in what uh, uh, we have done rather than in what God has done. And so uh, certainly on the other side, we need to be careful about letting go and letting God. I mean, Proverbs 16 says, man plans his ways, but God guides our steps. I mean, if you want to get a job, pray to God, Lord, help me, give me discernment. Here's the job I want. Here's the schooling I need to do. Then go do the schooling and then go do the job. And then, you know, I mean, sometimes people get all, just go do it. You know, ask God for help, plan your way and God will guide your steps. <laughs> I mean, also too, the Bible says, and I think it's James, where he says, um, if you lack wisdom, ask, and God will give you the wisdom that you need. God guides us, God protects us, God cares for us, and we can ask him for the help that we need. And we must recognize the daily life that we have comes from God. The daily tasks we engage in is by the help of God. We do them in the help of the Lord, but we do them in the help of the Lord. So how do we put our trust in God? We pray. Lord, will you get up? Lord, here is my daily bread. Please provide for me my daily bread today. I mean, that's the Lord's prayer. There seems to be an implication that one is praying that in the morning. Again, we don't have to necessarily have our whole quiet time at that time. I don't believe in setting a time, but 
Lord, please provide for my daily bread today. Well, how is the Lord going to do that? <laughs> By you getting up and doing your job. I mean, that's uh, how that happens. I mean, it's, it's not rocket science, but we can be forgetful of these sorts of things. So our daily tasks, we have our help from God. Our sanctification, it is once again help from God, but we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians chapter 2, it is God who works in us both to will and to do. You struggle with a certain sin. Lord, please forgive me. Pray the prayers we talked about last Lord's Day morning. You know, Lord, you said that you, uh, a Christian, you know, should speak more kindly and build other people up. I confess, Lord, I'm tearing people down. Please forgive me. I trust you'll give me the help to A, not tear people down, and B, to build people up. That is according to his will. And God will give you the help and strength that you need. And then you know what you go and do? You go go build somebody up. You go encourage them. You go say a kind word to them. You go, especially if you're married or you have children, I mean, you can go say to them a kind thing. You can practice it in those relations. You have to still go and do it. But it's God who works in us both to will and to do because God works through a people who have been given a power. We have been endowed with a mind. We've been endowed with a will. And if you are in Christ, you are redeemed and you can do it by the strength of the spirit and in the power of God. So trust in God. Put your faith in God. He will help you. He helped Jacob. He helps you and I. He helps me. And even when we're forgetful, you know what he does? He reminds us. He warns us. And then he also corrects us and helps us to press on. We press on towards that goal. So that's Israel's strength in vain things. Let's then look, secondly, at Israel's strength in Yahweh. Or at least they should put their strength in Yahweh. And we see in verses 9 and 10, we see the Lord who does redeem and the Lord who does warn. Again, the Exodus theme comes up. It has been a major theme throughout this book, a reversal of the Exodus. But then we're going to see a reversal of the reversal of the Exodus later on in Christ. Uh, but we see the Lord brings it up again. I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. I am the one who redeemed you and brought you out of it. But what he's going to do is going to be a reversal again. And it brings up the Feast of Tabernacles. I will make, again, make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feasts. The Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, Leviticus 23, 39 through 43, its purpose was so that Israel never forgot their need. So that Israel never forgot their wandering in the wilderness. And as they wandered in the wilderness, they had to rely upon God, quail and manna and water from God. And so when they went into the land and they had this land flowing with milk and honey and they had to, you know, earn their keep by what they did and raise their own livestock, the purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles was so that they never forgot. They never forgot their need. They never forgot who helped them. And what happens? They go into the land. It's flowing with milk and honey. Their grapes increase. Their vines increase. And they forget the Lord. And so the Lord is going to remind them. The Lord is good to remind his people. He is kind to remind his people. And he is kind to warn his people. We see that in verse 10. I have also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions. I have given symbols to the witness of the prophets. 
He's just highlighting the fact that he brought these prophets on the scene, these guardians of the theocracy. That's a cool title in your job. To make sure everything's protected, to point to the kings and tell them, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong. Of course, when they did that, then they faced persecution. That's why there were other false prophets who just said what the kings uh, wanted to say. But a true prophet was one who warned, one who spoke on behalf of God, one who spoke the word of God to the people. They functioned as that they came to warn. God gave them to speak to them in their ignorance. He's multiplied visions. He's given symbols to help illustrate through the witness of the prophets. Certainly Hosea's marriage is one very clear symbol, although that might not be necessarily in view in verse 10. But God uses pictures sometimes to wake his people up. When uh, the, the visionary prophecies come on the scene, when revelation comes on the scene, it is to wake the people up because people can be lethargic. We can be sleepy. We can begin to slumber. We need something just to wake us up just a little bit. I mean, let's be honest. If we saw something weird happening, we saw a vision, we would probably you know, be wondering what's going on and we'd be kind of awake to that very sort of thing. And the people needed that. Now, for us, it is the word. We preach the word. We don't, you know, believe in ongoing revelation in that sort of way. Uh, but, you know, God does kindly wake us up in our lives many times if we're getting a little too proud or getting a little too whatever. God is pleased to wake us up. And the prophets were used to wake the people up, but they did not wake up because their strength was in other things. Their strength is in idols. So the three uses of this strength idea come in verse 3, and in his strength, Jacob struggled. In verse 8, I have become rich. I have found strength or wealth for myself. But also the cognate comes up again in verse 11, though Gilead has idols or Gilead has strength. You see, he's made Assyria riches and idols as strength. Man is much weaker than man thinks. <laughs> you are probably not as strong as you think. The reality is we are as weak I'm trying to think of an example. We're as weak as man is, because man's not very weak. Though Gilead has idols, has strength in them. Surely they are vanity, they bring nothing. Though they, are, they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal, indeed their altars shall be heaps in their furrows of the field. They sought and put their trust in idols, put their trust in things that are made by man that can be burned up. Man is as weak as idols. Man is as delicate as a flower that can be ripped very easily. We are not that strong. Our life is but a vapor. I mean, that is what it is. That's why we need to put our faith in the one who is almighty, the one who is omnipotent. But Gilead does not. Gilead, you know, certainly there's the region of Gilead on the eastern side of the Jordan. But Gilead was mentioned in chapter 6, verse 8, and the iniquity of the priests that were there. So, and then there's Gilgal that's mentioned. Now, Gilgal was the place where they first initially crossed into the promised land under Joshua. But there could be another place of Gilgal in view here, a notorious place of wickedness. Here's the goodness of God. Here's the warning of God. But they still put their trust in these things. Gilead has idols. They sacrifice bulls in Gilgal. Indeed, their altars shall be heaps in the furrows of the field. They have their strength in anything but God. And so God comes again and gives them another historical lesson, redemptive historical lesson in verses 12 through 14. Jacob comes up again, verse 12. This is Jacob in Syria in verses 28, or Genesis 28 and 29. 
Jacob fled to the country of Syria. Israel served for a spouse and for a wife he tended sheep. Jacob was exiled, wasn't he? He went away from the promised land because of what he did. Now, God blessed him, and it was through it, despite his deceit, and even despite of exile, it's in exile that we have the nation formed. We have all the children born. But he's highlighting the fact here that Jacob still had to deal with the consequences of what he did. He had nothing, and the Lord provided, but he was still away. He fled. He served for a spouse. He served 14 years for a spouse and for a wife. He tended sheep. McKay says the community is being urged not to copy Jacob's mistakes, but to take advantage of the Lord's provision for Israel. Here's what will happen, but the Lord is also good. Here's what will happen, Israel, if you don't do what is right, but the Lord was good to Jacob. Flee to God. Flee to Yahweh. And that's not what they do. And even later on, even despite Jacob's ridiculousness, we see in verse 13, by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. That is by Moses. God spoke by way of Moses and by a prophet, he was preserved. And by many prophets, they are preserved. And even perhaps Samuel could be in view here by a prophet, he was preserved. The one who spoke on behalf of the Lord in 1 Samuel. The Lord preserved his people in many ways. He redeemed them. He preserves them. He watches over them. But what does Israel always do? They provoke. Verse 14. Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore, his Lord will leave the guilt of his bloodshed upon him and return his reproach upon him. Again, here is what Jacob suffered or what Jacob endured by what he did. But Jacob also received many good things. But Israel continued to trample upon the goodness of God. God was gracious. God was patient. God provided, but they trampled on the goodness of God. Unbelievers are the same. They may not have had the oracles. They may not have had the covenant like uh, with Israel, but nonetheless, the rain falls upon the just and the unjust. God created them. They are supposed to. They were meant to be made to worship and serve the creator. But because of sin, what do they do? They go against the things of God. But God is still kind in that way to give them good things in this present world. And yet, what do they do? Trample on the goodness of God. Or even perhaps worse, if a, someone comes into the house of the Lord week by week and hears the message and hears the word of God, and does not believe. You can't say you were never warned. You can't say there was never a call to believe on Christ. You can't say that God, ne there was never that holding out, that, that promise of eternal life, should you believe upon Christ. You cannot say that. Many trample upon the goodness of God in many, 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 many sorts of ways. He was good in the Exodus. He was good in his preserving. He was good to Jacob. But Israel continued to provoke him to anger most bitterly. They didn't remember the word. They didn't listen to the word by the way of the prophets. So warning here, but there is also meant to be encouragement as well. Hopefully you see that and we'll kind of close on some encouragement where trust in God encourages us. He is our refuge and our strength, isn't he? And we need to be reminded of that very thing. We need to be encouraged that he has spoken to us and he communes with us. And in fact, 
I do think this Jacob's ladder is alluded to by way of our Christ in John 1. How is it that we can have communion with God? How is it that we can have access to God? It's by way of the one who descended. And Jesus is speaking to Nathanael. And he says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. This is verse 50. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. It's a clear allusion back to Genesis 28. As the angels descended and ascended, Christ is that one who opens the door to heaven, who opens the gateway to heaven, who opens that ladder to heaven, and it is in him. And thankfully, brethren, we have that now. If you believed upon him, we have that now. That's why John says we can have access and confidence before God because of our great high priest. When we come to have a church, I, I almost said it, we come to heaven. When we come to church, we are coming to that heavenly country as this embassy in the midst of a hostile world, as we are making our way to that celestial city, as we are making our way home. And we can do so because of Christ Jesus. We have access to heaven through him. And I also then just want to close with the fact that as, even as God speaks to us, even he is the one who communicates, one thing that he does communicate is that he is our strength. This is in many places in the Bible. He is called the Lord God Almighty for a reason in the book of Revelation, but also in Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah 40, speaking ahead, prophesying further about that messianic age, he says, to whom then will you liken me or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name by the greatness of his might and the strength, same word, of his power. Not one is missing. Or later on, he goes on to say, why do you, in verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the heavens of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. God is our strength, and he increases our strength. Even the youths shall faint and the weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Why? Because we are in him who neither faints nor grows weary. We are in him through Christ Jesus, our Lord. He is the one who is our strength and the one who remains our strength. And also in Hebrews chapter 13, when the, when the writer says and quotes and says that God, God will never leave us nor forsake us, Joshua 1, I think, is in view. You know what else is in view? Genesis 28, 15, which talks about how God has promised to Jacob he will bring him back to this place. And the writer then takes that and takes what is said to Joshua and applies it to you and I. God will never leave you nor forsake you. God is with you. God helps you. God provides for you. And that's why we sung hymn 80, and we'll close with stanza six. The soul 
that on Jesus hath leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Put your trust in Christ. He is your strength. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful that you are our great strength. We are thankful for the promise that you neither faint and no, nor grow weary. And we confess we are very faint and very weary. And so we pray that you would be our strength, that you would be our refuge, that you would be our shield, that we would take your promises that you've given in your word to never leave us nor forsake us and apply them, that we would lay hold of them, that we would trust in them, and that we would trust that you are guiding us and keeping us and protecting us as we are making our way to that celestial city. We confess, O oh Lord, that we are tired from the world. We are tired from our own remaining corruption. We are tired from the many much strife that we deal with. And yet we are thankful that you uphold us and you keep us. And the fact that we stand in many difficult situations is an evidence that you are with us. And so thank you for that assurance and promise that we have, that we are Christ's and he is ours. Thank you that we can speak to you, we can pray to you, that we do have that passage into heaven. We are in heaven as we pray. We are before the throne of grace as we pray because of our great high priest. Help us not to take that for granted. Help us to appreciate that. And we do long for the time where Christ comes back. We do long for the time where we shall be in our homeland. And we know that that day shall come very soon. And we pray that it would come quickly. But as we await, give us the strength that we need. If there are any here today who do not know Christ, please show them their weakness. Please show them their sinfulness. Please show them their need. And may they find the remedy for their need in Christ Jesus. He is our strength. He is the Almighty One. And we're thankful that He is the Mighty One who lived, died, and rose again for such undeserving people like us. Help us to put our trust in Him, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.